You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. Um, Well, if you're visiting, I'll add my welcome uh, to Mike's welcome and tell you that Eric will be... Uh, back, so don't make all your judgments based on this morning, all right? It, listen, it's great to be with you. I love being here. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be looking at uh, the sovereignty of God. That's We've been looking at the attributes of God. Um, you have had, uh, uh, let's see, so Eric did the holiness of God. You had Mark did the wisdom of God, and uh, Ricky... Wait, is that right? No, Mark did the faithfulness of God, and then Ricky Gardner. Ricky was here. He did the, um, the, the other one of God. You know, you know that one. And, uh, hey, but, I mean, what a, Bethel, what a cool place that all of these guys, these great preachers um, at each of these campuses, and so I hope you've enjoyed having um, each of them here. Hey, so real quick, I, and I'm never here, and some of you are like, I don't even know you, so it doesn't even matter, but my wife is here, um, Leslie, uh, hi, Leslie, and our daughter, youngest daughter, Catherine, my son, Jay, uh, my mom is here uh, to hear me preach, uh, and her husband, my stepdad, Scotty, and so anyways, my whole family's here, and uh, so if I seem nervous or something, it's because of that. Um, so the sovereignty of God, here, here's what we're, what we're doing when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. We are talking about um, well, it's like Eric always says, but I, maybe Tozer said it before that. Um, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so when we think about God and we think about sovereignty, we're talking about two things. We're talking about the authority of God, the infinite, matchless, um, boundless authority of God, and His power, His infinite holy, majestic, matchless, infinite power. His authority and His power. Now, you can have authority without any power. You can have power without any authority. And neither of those things is sovereignty. But when you talk about the sovereignty of God, it is both His power and His authority to do what He has decreed to be done. That's what we mean. And you could go to a lot of different passages in Scripture to talk about uh, the sovereignty of God, and I want to look at um, a passage that is super familiar, at least a verse that is super familiar for us, and it is Romans 8, 28. That's where we're going to begin. In Romans 8, 28, it's one of those verses that when we're, um, you know, somebody calls us and they're going through a really difficult time, I mean, we don't even have to say the whole verse to them. We just say, oh yeah, you know, well, Romans 8, 28. And, and what we mean by that is, is that you, um, you know, God's going to work all this out. It, 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 all this is going to be good because of, because of God. And, and so let me say, right, that's absolutely true. It is a great verse to claim. And we do that all the time. We have these verses. We'll, we'll pull them out, and they're, they're like verses that we hold onto, we anchor onto. And, and even better than that, though, is seeing um, a, a verse that we've pulled out to anchor our moment in, is to see that verse in the context 
of the passage that it lives. Because the truth is, it actually is far richer, far deeper, far more meaningful for all of us than we have the opportunity to stop and think about most of the time. And so that's what I want to see. I want to see this verse in its context. And then when we talk about it, then all of, all of its context then we get to bring to bear. So we're going to talk about God's sovereignty. That is His power and His authority. We're going to start in Romans 8, 28, and we're going to see three things. We're going to see God's sovereignty in suffering. We're going to see God's sovereignty in salvation. And we're going to see God's sovereignty in sustaining us through the end of our life. As the Bible talks about sovereignty, it talks about it um, in the context of creation, that God is sovereign and creative. The Bible opens up with God's sovereignty, His power and authority to create out of nothing with a word. You see God's sovereignty in the contexts of human history. That means the ordinary, everyday things of our lives, that part of history, and the part of history that sees the rise and fall of nations and eras and empires. God is sovereign in His authority and power over all that. And God's sovereignty in salvation. And so that's what we'll look at. Now, as you look at Romans 8.28, here's what you need to know. This passage actually begins back in Romans 7. Well, actually, back in Romans 1. But in, in Romans 7, the end of Romans 7 is this place. If you've been around the church, you probably know it. And it's where Paul, he's wrestling. He's in a very difficult place in his life, and he's wrestling with things like, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And there's this great tension and angst and, and desperation on his part. And so in chapter 7, verse 24, he cries out, who will deliver me? Who will save me from this body of death? And it is this great question that then he proceeds to answer in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 8, it opens up in 8.1 and it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And then it ends in 8.39 and says, Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. It is the anchored by two statements of in Christ. For those that are in Christ, there's no condemnation. And for those that are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And everything in between that is informed by those two bookmarks. And in the middle of it, he's going to talk about suffering. He says in verse 18 of chapter 8, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then instead of giving us, um, you know, how to get out of suffering, which Paul never does, instead he offers us a hope in the midst of suffering. And he'll go on and he'll begin to talk about, hey, what God does in suffering is sovereign. And he ends that discussion, or transitions it in verse 28. So look with me in Romans 8, verse 28, and he says this. 
and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Well, here in 8.28, you see that it says, those who are called according to His purpose. And when you see statements like His purpose or God's purpose, you know now you're in the realm of sovereignty. That what God purposes, God does. And he says, listen, all these things, all these things that we've been talking about, these, these sufferings, they work together for good. Now, good, you need to know good. It is not this external good. It's not you know, this intrinsic good. What he means is an internal good. He means, um, maybe better, an eternal good. And he defines that good in verse 29 as being conformed to the image of, of his son that that's the good he's working all these things together so that we are being conformed to the image of his son and when you use image the, the biblical writers Paul's he's drawing off a couple of things in the first century one of those is an image that would have been on a on a coin uh, on on currency you know the embossed image of a of the Caesar or a Pharaoh or something like that's what gave it its value was the image that was on the coin and um, so like we could do this I could we could give you um, you could leave here and we say these are million dollar pieces uh, we could give each one of you a million dollar piece that had my face on it and you, you could get nothing with it it's it would be of no value but if we gave you something with you know George Washington's face on it or better yet Benjamin Franklin's face on it, that would be of, of value the other um, thing they're drawing on, the other thing Paul's drawing on when he talks about image is the way that you would have seen your own image, the reflection of your image in the first century, is you would have had to find still water and then gaze into the water and the reflection of the water off the image. And that's what he's speaking of, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Anybody ever been to the Alamo? Uh, the great, yes. So, um, the, so I love the Alamo. I love every time, if we're near it, I take my kids and we drag them through the Alamo um, because the Alamo, I share this great uh, thing with the Alamo. The, my birthday and the day the Alamo fell is the same day. Uh, different years, but it's the, the same day that that happens. So I feel, you know, tragically... Uh, uh, you know, drawn to the Alamo. So you go there, though, and, and most people just go and they take a picture and you walk on, but don't do that. Next time you go, start seeing all the portraits and inscriptions and all of these things because right up front there is a portrait that exists just before you go into the Alamo, and there's an, in, there's an inscription underneath it, and this is what it says. It says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, 
who greatly resembled his uncle. And it's placed here by the family that the people may know the appearance of the man who died for their freedom. See, you can draw that line. That's what God is doing in us. There's no portrait of Jesus that exists, but He's forging the likeness of His Son as He conforms us. And the conforming us includes the all things. You know, one writer said, listen, the primary reason for salvation is not to take us somewhere, but to make us like someone. That's what God is doing. Now, it shows us these two aspects of God's love. One, you are fully embraced as you are by God. Unconditionally loved, unconditionally chosen, and nothing Nothing changes that no matter what. At the same time, you're always in the process of being transformed by God. And God does that through the all things. And all things includes things like suffering and hardship and grief and even the consequences of our own sin. But the thing about all things, the two challenges to the all things in our life is one we believe or let me say it this way we desperately want to believe that comfort is the more fertile ground to cultivate Christ likeness I mean we we want to believe we know it's not true you know but we it's like we want to go okay God I will be a great steward of comfort if you would lavish comfort upon me then I will be a steward. I will be diligent to then be forged into Christ's likeness. But that's not how it works. I mean, we know that. Comfort is not the fertile ground for Christ's likeness. And, and we know that from experience. The other thing we have a difficult time is the same, you know, favorable circumstances. We believe favorable circumstances is part of the fall. It's a part of our human nature. We believe favorable circumstances, you know, like a good job and financial security and obedient children and health and aging. We believe that to be more satisfying than being indwelt by and transformed into Christ. It's just how we are. In fact, we, you know, if we were given a choice at the beginning of the day, knowing all the things that would happen during the day, so do you want to choose um, comfort in favorable circumstances, or do you want to choose Christ's likeness today? Most of us would be like, well, I don't, you know, I don't, it's Memorial Day weekend. How about, how about comfort? I'll take a little comfort today. Because we believe, we believe that that's more satisfying. But listen, this is why people would say things like, you know, I went through this thing, and I would never choose to go through it again but I would not trade it for the world because of what it's done in me. And we know that to be true. It's an old story of a seminary professor, um, Dr. Caldwell. And um, he was, this was a long time ago, but he was teaching a seminary class to a bunch of students, and he was teaching them uh, through the book of Romans. And 
uh, Dr. Caldwell got to, he finished up this, so this one particular uh, day of teaching. He says, tomorrow, and tell the seminary students, he says, tomorrow I'll be teaching on Romans 8. So tonight, what I want you to do is to go home, and as you study it, pay special attention to verse 28. Notice what the verse truly says, and notice what the verse doesn't say. And then we'll talk about it tomorrow. And as the students are gathering their things, he says, and on a final note, before I dismiss you, I want you to know whatever happens in all the years to come, Romans 8.28 will always hold true. So Dr. Caldwell finishes that lecture. And he gets in the car and he drives home to pick up his wife who was getting ready for a, um, an event that they were going to that evening, this, this dinner that he was invited to be the, uh, in his honor. So he leaves, and he picks up his wife, and as they're driving to the banquet, um, Dr. Caldwell's car and a train meet the tracks at the same time. And his wife that evening was instantly killed, and he was permanently paralyzed. And so he uh, goes into recovery, and it's four months before he comes back to the seminary. And it, in fact, he has to come back the next semester, but he comes back and, he, and he, they're going to have him at a class because he wants to finish this class that he started because it is not lost on these students. The last thing that he'd said before he left there. And so all the students show up and they're there and everybody in the seminary is packed in and he, he wheels in and in a voice that was much weaker than it had been four months earlier says this. Romans 8.28, men, still holds true. And one day we'll see God's good, even in this. It's what Paul's saying to us. One day, whether you see it now, or whether it, you have to wait all the way until you're glorified and in the presence of God, transformed into the likeness of Jesus. You will see the good. You will bow at the throne of grace and look back on your life and go, Oh, you were so good even in that. God's sovereignty in suffering. And then he moves directly into God's sovereignty in salvation. Look at what he does in verse 29. For those whom he, and then he says, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and, and to the good, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so from 29 and 30, he's going to cover salvation, history, salvation from eternity past to eternity future. And it's called, by many commentators you read, it's called the golden chain. And it, is, and it is detailing what it is that God does. The activity of God in salvation. And the emphasis is God does everything. 
He brings all His power and all His authority to bear upon our salvation. Now listen, when we, when we talk about these things, I realize I can already feel the discomfort in the room. So you, you say things like foreknowledge for, for or predestination. And you say predestination and things like, you know, you've been around the church thinking, oh, well, there must be an election. And then, and then you know, the calling. And, and I feel it. And, and there's this sense in which we, we, um, we get wrapped up and we think, well, I, I don't like these terms. Or I've heard people say, well, I don't believe in predestination. And I say, well, you have to believe something about it because it's right here. But I would say this. That these truths are meant to be not a puzzle to our minds. They're meant to be pillows to our hearts. It'd be like if you've ever taken an English class, you know, an English literature class in college, and you're there, and you're just like poetry semester or something, and you've you know, you got this poem, and you take the poem, and you begin to break the poem down, and you know, tear it apart, and see how it works, and, and look at the rhythm of the poem, and the meter of the poem, and does it rhyme, or does it not rhyme, and how, you know, how do the stanzas work, and are there couplets, and all these, and you're pulling it all apart, and then all of a sudden, like, the poet would burst into the room, and say, stop, that's not why I wrote the poem, I wrote the poem, so that you would feel it and know it deep in your soul. Not that you would dissect it with your mind. And there's a sense in which as we approach these truths, we need to remember that. J.F. Packer um, calls that tension that we all feel when this comes up. This tension between the sovereignty of God and then the, the free will of man or the uh, the responsibility of man, that tension, he calls that tension an antinomy. And an antinomy is this. It is two truths that are seemingly contradictory, and yet they both are true. And, and what you need to know is that the biblical writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they absolutely feel no need to resolve the tension as they record both the sovereignty of God, like we see here, or if we were to go to Acts 17, where it says, God desires, God demands that men everywhere repent, and they feel no need as they record these truths to try in any way to reconcile them. That's our need, that's what we feel. And I would say this, if you ever relieve the tension between the two, you've done what the Bible hasn't done and doesn't intend to. Someone asked Spurgeon one time, how do you reconcile those two things? And he said, I see no need to reconcile friends. It's, a good, it's good for us to remember. Well, so as we talk about these truths, um, let's, let's uh, begin, let's talk about predestination or foreknowledge. Let me start with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge says this. Foreknowledge is not, it is, I'll tell you what it's not. It is not that God looks down the corridor of time and then <clears throat> sees what it is that you're going to do, whether you're going to believe or not believe in Jesus, and then based on that, then predestines you. 
That is not foreknowledge. And I'll tell you why it's not foreknowledge. Because the Bible does not present a God who discovers anything. God asks no questions. I mean, He doesn't ask a question because He doesn't know the answer. We don't have a God that's discovering anything. We have a God who decrees everything. And His sovereignty says He has both the authority and the power to divinely work out what it is He has decreed for His purposes. We do not have a God that discovers. We have a God who decrees. To foreknow, this is intimate language. This is covenant language. He told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before you were in the womb, I knew you. That's what he means. And so to predestine us, predestination is to, be, is to mark out beforehand. To set a course. It, it is, predestination is always unconditional. It is always initiated by God. And it speaks of His divine purposes as it relates to all created things. Let me just say this. If if you do not have a high view of God's sovereignty, you, you will struggle in your life to not be bitter. You will struggle in your life to... To know what it is to know comfort or to know rest. You you will struggle in your life to be able to see God like Joseph sees God as his brothers come and stand before him in Genesis chapter 50. And he says, as for you, in your free will and in your human responsibility, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God, in His sovereignty, in all His authority, in all His power, God meant it for good to bring about that many should be kept alive or saved as they are today. And what Joseph doesn't know, but we know now looking back, is that God was conforming Joseph to the likeness of of the greater Joseph that was to come. He was conforming him to the likeness of his son Jesus, who would come and endure suffering unimaginable at the hands of evil men, fully responsible. And yet God decreed those things before the foundations of time that many would be saved. That's sovereignty. Well, you, um, the, the story goes, there's just two groups of theologians. And, uh, well, they, they were one group, and, and they got into this heated debate about, you know, predestination and, and man's responsibility or, or free will. And uh, the debate got so heated that they ended up breaking into two groups. And there's one lone guy who, you know, was a part of that, and he, he didn't know which group to go with. He didn't, you know, he couldn't 
hadn't decided yet. So he did all his research, he studied it, he thought it all through. And after all of that, he decided he, you know, that he agreed with the, the predestination group. So he goes to the predestination group and says, I want to be a part of your group. And they say, well, how, how, how'd you come to be a part of this group? He said, well, I, you know, I looked at all the information and of my own free will I chose to be. They said, no, that's not how that works. So they kicked him out, and they sent him over to the other group. So he goes, and he goes over to the other group kind of sheepishly, and he says, well, I'm here to join your group. They said, well, how did how'd you get here to join the group? And he said, well, I, not my own free will. I, I was sent here. They said, sent here? You can't be a part of this group. And so he left and started the Baptist church. Anyways, um, <laughs> this is a joke. They're 80% a joke. All right, so anyways... Here's what it means. It means that we love him because he first loved us. That God's grace is, you might hear it called prevenient grace or previous grace or the effectual call of God. Because those whom he predestined, he also called it says. That those he foreknew before the foundations of time, he predestines. And so that's salvation in eternity past. And yet salvation comes to us at a moment in time, in history. And that's when it's appropriated. That's when we step into it. We're not saved back there. We're saved when we hear and respond to the call. Then you are justified. And everyone must respond to the call. But notice, he doesn't lose anyone. He starts with foreknowledge and ends with glorification, and God doesn't lose anyone in the midst of it. No one gets quit in the middle. But the call comes in a moment in time in history based upon what it is that the Son of God has done. And what God decreed in eternity past is experienced in a moment in time, and that is salvation. And it is the love of God that woos us. It is the will of God that draws us. It's, it's the desire of God that's pursuing us. It's the gift of God that's freeing us. It's the power of God that's enabling us to believe. Once a call comes, it's like C.S. Lewis he, at the end of the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia. He, he sums all this up and says, Aslan, the Christ figure, says to the children, he says, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. And we affirm that. Praise God. And whatever else may be said about this, one thing is clear. The entire initiative of our salvation lies with God. From before time began, He foreknew us and predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And then in history, He calls us. And as we respond to the call, we are justified, which means we stand right before God based upon the righteousness 
of the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And then you think, well, there's justification and glorification. Where's the sanctification, Paul? And I think he sees the glorification. He didn't miss it. It's just glorification is sanctification fully realized. And it's guaranteed because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And you look at, sometimes in my study, I can look at a chapter, I can look at a passage, and I can just stare at it for days and days, or years and years in this case. And then I come across somebody that's been doing the same thing, and they seem to absolutely get it. John Dunn writes this. So what Paul is saying is, I shall be so like God as that the devil himself shall not know me from God. So far will he be able to find any place to fashion a temptation upon me than he would be able to upon God. And so far will he be able to conceive any more hope of my falling from his kingdom than of God being driven out of his kingdom. You know what Dunn's saying? As I look at this, what Paul's saying is, I am going to be so like Christ that Satan himself will not recognize me. I will be indistinguishable from the Son of the living God at glorification. It's beautiful. And God is working all those things in our life to that end. You know, I, um, I'm going to talk about here, and I'm going to close here in just a second. I want to talk about the, we looked at the sovereignty of God in suffering, the sovereignty of God in salvation. We'll look at the sovereignty of God in sustaining us, but I, I, I'll close with that. But I want to say this. This becomes extremely practical because of this. Some of you in this room, and I don't know any of your stories, but I know, I know people. I am a people. Some of you in this room, you have been pursued in your life wickedly. Evil has pursued you. It has stalked you. And because of that, you have tasted things you were never meant to taste in a perfect world. You have experienced things you were never meant to experience in a perfect world. You say, well, why has it happened? I can't tell you. I don't know. I don't know why that happened. And some of you this morning, you still feel the shame and the hurt and the bitterness and the disappointment. You still feel the evil's breath on your neck as it pursues you. But I can tell you from this passage, there is one greater. Where evil stalks you, I can tell you, there is one greater that stalks you, and that is God. This passage tells us God has been stalking us from before time Began. That he's been pursuing you and hunting you so that 
with the sole purpose of wrapping his arms around you and saying, I, I love you. I love you purely. I love you forever. And there's not anything you could ever do to escape my grasp. You know the verse. Psalm 23. After he says in verse 5, You'll prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And then he says, And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow is such a fascinating Hebrew word. It's the only time in all the Old Testament that it is translated follow. Every other time it's translated persecuted or hunted or overwhelmed. Surely goodness and mercy will persecute me, will hunt me down, will overwhelm me all the days of my life. Let me tell you something. We can rest in that. Our weary soul can rest there. Well, he's going to end this with what I would call God's sovereignty in sustaining us. And for many of us in this room, as as mind-boggling as verse 28 is, and as, you know, mind-boggling as verses 29 and 30 are, I would dare say that verses 31 to 39, that this, this is the hardest for us to believe in this passage. Because this sovereignty in sustaining us through our life, what Paul does, he's going to give us three evidences that God is completely for us. So he talks these great truths and he says, you know, so what do you do after you hear these things? And so he says in verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he gives us this evidence. He says, God does not withhold anything from us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will, he also, um, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? First evidence of love is that he does not withhold anything from you. The second evidence of that love is in verses 33 and 34 where he says, he will not allow anything to condemn us. Everything that could ever be said about you or ever will be said about you was already said 2,000 years ago on the cross. Nothing can condemn you. There is no condemnation. And then finally, the third evidence he tells us is that he will not allow anything to separate us from his love. Look at what he says, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it's written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing but nothing can separate you. You know, God's sovereignty always is in the context of God's love. It's the way it's always presented. All His power, all His authority, and God says, nothing will separate you from my love. There's a story of a grandfather and he goes to visit his granddaughter and she's playing with her dolls and so the grandfather comes and he asks her you know this little granddaughter which of these are your favorite doll and she says oh and so she goes over to this little chest and she opens it up and she pulls out this doll and it's the most raggedy doll you've ever seen it like it doesn't have an, it's missing an eye and it's filthy you know and the stuffing's coming all out of it and the grandfather says, oh, well, why is, th why is this your favorite doll? And the granddaughter says to him, she says, well, if I didn't love this doll, nobody would. If God did not love us, no one would love us the way we were designed to be loved. There is this vacuum in us. And it is so strong and it can only be filled with the love of God. And God's love is absolutely unconditional as he lavishes it upon you. I'll give you a couple of things and we're going to go home. One, God's love cannot be gauged by what happens to us. The evidence of God's love is not what happens to us in our life. You know what the evidence of God's love is? The evidence of God's love is the cross. It's not what happens in our life. The evidence of God's love is what happened in His Son's life. This is love, John says in John 4, that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. The other thing it tells us is that God's love, while it cannot be gauged by what happened to us, it also cannot be affected by the things we do. Your complete and perfect and absolute righteous obedience will not make God love you one scintilla more than He already does. And your absolute Filthy disobedience will not cause him to love you any 
less. Our obedience does not affect God's love. It's so unnatural for us to think that way. Performance is required in every other relationship, but not so with God. You will never be loved more actively by anyone than you are loved by God, more generously, more unconditionally, more extravagantly than by God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with those questions of, gosh, who can save me? Who can deliver me? Who, who can rescue me from myself? You know what Paul's answer is? God. And he was at work doing that before the foundations of time. So this morning, the question is, do you hear the call? Do you hear it? How, how do you respond to it? If you hear it, this, the Spirit's working in you, and you say, oh, there's something in me, and I, and I know I can't save myself, and I know I can't fix myself, and the best I can do is the things I don't want to do anyway. That's the call. And the way that we respond to the call and are justified, which means we're, we're made right, we're cleansed, we're clothed with the beauty and the perfection of Jesus, is that we believe. We say, I, I believe that. I believe it. And in a moment, you become a son or a daughter, a child of the eternal living God who created you. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. After the service, we'll have somebody right up here and they'll be, they'd love to pray for you. Don't leave here this morning without talking to somebody if you need to or praying with somebody. If you, if you desire to, we'll have somebody right here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's timeless and it's perfect and it reveals who you are. And so I pray, Father, that you would do what only you can do this morning. And that is take your word, your living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword word. And that it would not return void, that it would accomplish the, the thing that it was sent to accomplish in our lives. And it would, you would do that this morning. You would, you would bring dead things to life this morning. And the Father, for those that have never believed, would you... Grant them the faith to believe, to hear your call, to see your Son, to believe His sacrifice was for them. And that this morning, this morning, they can know what it is to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be loved to be a son or a daughter of the eternal God. Father, do that in us. We ask you and we pray this the only way we can. That is in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, it's been great to be here today. I think I'm so, we're like I'm supposed to bless you or something. So stand, if you would stand with me. That's what Eric does, right? You stand. And may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you. Amen.
thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.